Yo, just want to take a sec to give a big shout to my people at Wide Roots Imports. The role of a good wine importer is to tell the story of the land that the wines are from. Wide Roots does that in a very judgment-free way. They're an educational resource for people that are new to wine, and if I'm rocking with them, you know they keep some fire on deck. Right now, bringing in wines from Spain and Italy. For more info, go to WideRootsLLC.com now. This is a moment in wine and hip-hop, brought to you by Crew Love, blending wine and hip-hop at the highest level. Wine and hip-hop, yeah. wine and music. Yeah. Tell me about Wine and hip hop really mirrors the, the conversations that we have in my office about wine and music. Yeah, what's good, y'all? It's your man, Jermaine Showtime Stone, a.k.a. The Wolf of Wine, a.k.a. The Zara Vibes, a.k.a. Young Thanos. I'm just out here collecting Infinity Stones. I got a legend in the game, man. This man is a man that needs no introduction. This is Carlton McCoy. How you feeling, man? I'm good, man. Uh, these days, honored to be alive. Blessed to be here talking to you. You know, <laughs> life's, life's good. <laughs> well, you are a busy man, man. Amongst many things, managing partner at Lawrence Estate Wines, um, you know, co-founder of the Roots Fund, I mean, master some all yay. Like, I don't, I don't know, dude. Like you, you, you wear a lot of hats and you wear them well, man. How, how did you get into the wine industry? Um, so, I mean, obviously I me, mean, a lot of Americans, it's not unique to my family. We didn't grow up with around wine. Uh, not wine as we know it. Right. I mean, you know, we grew up around, I mean, what we knew in our communities wine at that time is, um, you know, ending 2020, you know, you rather, you see a bot, you know, a, empty bottle of mud ice, you know, outside the liquor store at some point. <laughs> it's like the only, the only time you saw wine anywhere. But I started in the kitchen. My, I grew up in a, a big family. I, I was raised by my grandmother. And I, was, I was raised cooking. And I got a scholarship to go to culinary school in New York. That was a, a huge culture shock, but um, changed my life and, and sort of set me on a path for uh, a, different, a different future. And well, I was there, I took a wine class. So it was like a whole new world for me. It was something I had never... I mean, I saw it in movies and things like that. Like, I knew what wine was, but I never had a glass of wine. I never seen anyone actually drink a glass of wine. Um, so it was, like, real eye-opening for me. And I was, like, overwhelmed. You know what I mean? It was, like, starting from scratch. Like, this is what wine is. I couldn't tell you how it was made. I didn't even know it was made from grapes. Like, nope. And when I graduated from culinary school, I moved to, to Manhattan. And I was cooking around in restaurants. But I sort of got a rude awakening where I realized, it was like, I got a four-year degree to be making minimum wage. And I was like, look. Uh, you know, I was the first person in my family to go to college. I didn't go to college to make what, you know, my cousin was making at Home Depot. Like, I wasn't, it's not going to happen, you know? <laughs> right. So, you know, and then my family's like, how are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, you know, I just never thought about the economics of it because you just, right? You went to school, this fancy school, school, these chefs, like you've, you know, you gain this, this experience and skill set, you should be paid, but it's not the culture of You know, you sort of like go back to the bottom. I wasn't doing that. I was, I'd already come too far and, you know, I didn't, in college education to, to be So I took, uh, I took a position in the dining room at the time, Tom Colegio opened uh, Craft Steak. I applied to be a food runner. And, uh, I worked there for a few months. Uh, it was my first time ever working in a dining room. Uh, like anything that's new, it was miserable. Um, you know, I was used to being in the kitchen and not like, you know, having to wear like 
you know, shirt, tie, tie. It was the way I articulated myself. It didn't, you know, it was a big, it was a big change. The but I adapted and learned. And, um, and I got a job working at, uh, per se, as a food runner. They had some job openings, had a big turnover. There were new restaurants. So new restaurants, you get a lot of turnover. Um, and they hired me because of my food knowledge. Mm. If you're a food runner, at, if they change the menu twice a day, every menu is like 20 items. Like to learn all that within hours, you have to know a lot about food. And I studied like crazy in school and I took advantage of that opportunity. So um, it was my food knowledge that got me hired there. But when I was there, they started off with wine classes for free. You can come in before your shift and they would wine class. So I started just coming in listening. Like I didn't know anything. I didn't even know how to start studying wine. I just sit in the back and listen and taste. Um, and then my family went through some tough times. My grandmother, who was my only parent, really passed away. And I moved home to help support my family. Uh, my sister was there, my two nieces, and moved back to D.C. And I had the opportunity to work at City's Inn, which is a restaurant at the Nen Oriental. chef. Eric Zeeball was a chef at French Laundry for like nine years. Still probably the greatest chef I've ever worked with. Um, and I was working under Andy Myers, who was this, you know, he was a, like an old punk rock kid from D.C. Whole body just tatted up. Like, not the kind of guy that you associate with wine as a sommelier. He was running a wine program. And I was like, man, like, you know, when I, per se, was so buttoned up. Everybody was, like, so proper. And, like, you know, obviously for someone like me, it was, like, a very uncomfortable environment to be in. It was so stiff. Yeah. And Andy was, like, he just had this, like, you know how punk rock kids from, like, the 80s were. Like, they just had this, like, sort of, you know, they got a panache about it. And they, you know, and they're irreverent. They, you know, they curse. You know, they, it's just not what you think of as, like, and I was like, wow. It's like, I've never seen anybody in the industry, like, was like that. And afterwards, like we go off work and he'd be like, Hey, you want to go for a drink? And then he'd come out and he'd be like in sneakers and shorts and like a Slayer t-shirt. And again, like, <laughs> I didn't know what Slayer was. I was raising that music. So I like, you know, I looked it up. We had like Yahoo back at the time. I was like, shit, like he listens to that. And I found out the guy's like a death metal drummer. He was like a bouncer at the 930 club. Like this guy was like total like counterculture. And it sort of like opened my mind to like, okay, like maybe like people who live on the outskirts of society can like do this, you know? And he took me under his wing and was like, look, you know, like, these are the books that you need. You're like, if you want to make it in the dining room, your check average needs to go up. And if you, the only way to bring the check average up is wine. He's like, the steak, you can only sell so many steaks to one person, right? <laughs> that's that's <laughs> right. your cap. They're only going to eat so much steak. He's like, but the wine bill is, the sky's the limit. You can go past this guy. So he's like, the more you learn, the bigger your check average is. So I started studying. And it was, uh, it was an economic decision for me initially. It was like, how do I arm myself to make more money? And I just started falling in love with it, um, you know, learning from him. You know, he created opportunities for me to get trips to travel. And it just became my life. Like, I, I had never had an opportunity like that before. And I recognized that. So I, like, took full advantage and just kept going down that path. That's real, man. And yeah. because you, it's not like you were raised in a wine culture. Like, did your parents drink wine? Like, what was your upbringing like? Like, what, what were your surroundings like oh. growing up? I mean, I was raised, I was born and raised in D.C. I was born in D.C. General Hospital. And I was born in 1984. And at that 84, time. 84, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> There's so much great stuff that happened in 84. Jordan. Uh, that's, well, everything. I think, was it Michael Jackson, like, a Thriller album came on in 84? Um, no, but it was like, you know, that time in D.C. was wild. It was, you know, it was literally like the very beginning of the crack epidemic. It was like, that's sort of like, like early to mid 80s. And then it just blew up. It got worse from there. And from there, all the way through the late 90s, I mean, it, it slowed down a little bit in the mid 90s, a little bit, but it was wild. It was like a, a war zone. The whole, the whole city was. And How did you stay parents, away from the street life during that upbringing? 
well, you know, I didn't 100 percent. To be very honest with you, I, you know, both of my parents were drug addicts. My mother was a uh, was a heroin addict. She died when I was two, and my dad was a drug addict until he died. So I was raised by my grandmother predominantly, and we grew up in Southeast DC. It was like the epicenter for it all, and everyone in my family was sort of dabbling in it. It was like it was like this. It was like literally like a pandemic that just came through DC. And you know, I always quote Dave Chappelle because you know, he's from DC and he talks about it. he's like. He left to go live with his his dad in Ohio for a little bit, and he, you know, DC used to be a very progressive um, black community. You know, everybody had a good government job. You know, it was like, and then crack it, and that next generation, those kids who were born in like the '60s, late '50s, just got decimated. It just wiped out a whole generation of parents in DC. So all those kids were left raised by the. How many people I know just raised by their grandparents? You know, it's like wow. that whole generation was just wiped out. So we were all raised without a whole lot of guidance by our grandparents. Luckily, my grandmother was a, was a Pentecostal preacher. So, you know, we, she tried to keep us really busy between school and the church. And like, you know, I played the drums in, um, in church and I played the drums in the go-go band. So I, you stay busy, but you know, you're in that neighborhood and you're around it. So you get swept up and, you know, you get involved in things. And, you know, I dabbled a little bit, but I would say not to the point where I got so deep in, I, you know, it couldn't be rectified, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but a lot of my, 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 my family did not end up that way. So I still have a lot of families who, who were in prison, a lot passed away, you know, a lot that are still addicted to drugs. And for me, my sister and I were the only mixed kids. So my mother's white, my father, my mother's from a, a white Jewish family in, in the Bronx. My dad was, my dad was black. So we were like the lightest kids in the neighborhood, which meant you had to, you had to always prove yourself, right? You it was like step it up, yeah. <laughs> no, as I said, like you had, like your knuckle game had to be on point. Like I was like, <laughs> it was like nonstop. Like seriously, like you would just. I was t- I was talking to my team, and we were talking about twenty twenty. I was like, you know, it's like I thought the great philosopher, Mike Tyson talks about everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And I said, take it from somebody who's been punched in the mouth many times. <laughs> you know, it's a very traumatic thing. But you know, I got really, it'll throw you, know, you up your game equally every single oh, time. <laughs> you don't ever get used to it. Uh, you know, nobody gets used to getting punched in the face. Yeah. No, but it was like you had, I had to be tough. My sister had to be really tough. And you had to sort of almost overprove yourself when we were really young to sort of survive in that neighborhood. You weren't going to survive. Um, and that pretty much went all the way through. And no, we, you know, we never interacted with wine. Nothing like that. We didn't, you know, my grandmother, she was absolutely incredible. They call like the, she's the mother trees of the ghetto. Like we, you know, we had all those families that were getting evicted and stuff like that. We'd have like three families living in the same house. Wow. My grandmother took care of everybody. And she ran a church at the same time. Just like really strong black woman, incredible. Taught me a lot about sacrifice, uh, how to support people. And, and more importantly, just work at it, like how to grind, you know? Mm. That's deep, man. I, I think about stuff like that all the time because, you know, I grew up in the hood also. And it's like, I, I look at, terroir and wine and there's so many philosophy well so many uh winemakers their philosophy is to to try to make the 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 grape speak for the land you know trying to yeah. get that that terroir so for my um people that are not as familiar terroir is a complete natural environment that a wine is produced in and i think yeah. about that as humans and how we relate to that sure. so often like wine is a product of its environment many times and us as humans, we're products of our environment, but it seems like the, the rougher that uh, terroir is, you know, it, it makes people much more creative. Like I look at somebody with your story and like, you know, the things you must've gone through had to like prepared you to be a CEO and navigate such difficult problems. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, we talk about, 
you want, you know, one thing that people have to be aware of is, you know, when, when you actually look at what's happening in the world right now and what people are being exposed to, it's making their lives uncomfortable, right? The, the risk of death, right? Uh, uh, feeling disenfranchised by your government, um, losing your job, uh, finding out that maybe the employer doesn't care about you very much. We got to understand this is the way that millions of people in this country live every day in, in, in the best of terms. And I grew up in this environment where that's the norm. So when, you, when you're raised around that as your norm, you know, when things get a little tense, you're sort of just like, okay, like, I, you know, like, I, <laughs> exactly. I, like, I, like, all right, like, I, I would just deal with this. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you're just used to, it's not that you, you, you're not downplaying it is what it is, but you go like, okay, you go into like, well, I need to create a solution. Like, right. I got to get out right. of this. Like, you don't, you don't just like stop. You don't, you know, it's like, oh, I'm just going to sit. No, like you, you got to adapt. You got to survive. Like, it's not, it's not really an option. And the more you, you have practice doing that in life, change your mentality behind things. You don't, it's not you don't have that luxury to just give up you don't have the luxury to like no i'm good you know like i'm just gonna like no like it's it's adapting all the time you do it every day yeah no it's it's true man i i talk about that a lot and um i feel like that you really needed to have that grit to survive 2020 (laughs) you know like um can we can we talk a little bit about your role at um at lawrence estates and basically how you've grown with the company. Cause you started work, you started there working with Heights, right? And then just kind of yeah. blew up from there. When, uh, so Galen Lawrence is the head of the family. Uh, so everything we do here is an investment from one family, from Lawrence family. Uh, they're an old farming family. Uh, he's diversified. They own a lot of like um, commodity crops, like you know, soy, and wheat, cotton, things like that, and growth crops. And, uh, you know, his, his father was the first generation to actually do that. And he took it and like blew it up into a, a much larger enterprise, diversified the family. He's a very, very, very resourceful, very smart business guy. Um, very creative in his approach and what he thinks. And it's, it's um, been really interesting learning from him. But, you know, when he hired me, it was to run Heights. And once I got here and I started to get sort of settled in, we realized that were, there were other opportunities here for us to do something similar. So me being the man on the ground, those opportunities to come to me as a sort of access point to gain them. But he also trusts my opinion and my, my, my judgment for the type of vineyards and estates to invest in because of the, mainly because of the wine stops and the style of wine I like to drink, like drink were alive. And we started just building it like a little bit at a time. And, you know, he sort of like took me under his wing with the first acquisition. He was like, hey, look, you're a quick learn. This first deal, you're going to sit in the room, you're going to listen to everything, and then you're going to go. And I sat there and I took notes, I listened to everything. There were terms that I, I didn't know, but luckily Google exists and anything that you want to know is available on the internet. So yeah. <laughs> I would, if we were in a, if, yeah, I mean, if we were in a meeting, it was like, I don't know what that means. I would go home. I'd re-listen. I'd research everything. And you, you sort of just pick up enough at a time that you can do it. And you, you know, you learn once, make a little mistake, pick up, go, and then you don't make that mistake again. Right. And you just keep yeah. going until, you know, finally now my, a big, well, the main purpose of my job is sort of overseeing all of our wineries and managing, um, the valuation of our assets, um, so vineyards, wineries, and, and building teams. I mean, my the, the team that I've been able to build here is like insane in a very short amount of time. And we've had a little bit of turnover, but that's expected with new companies and this year, frankly. Uh, but ultimately, I mean, we've had like 95% retention rate. It's been like incredible. Um, and, and that's pretty my role. I don't I don't directly 
work for any of the companies or any ones, but I oversee them and manage all the teams. Right, right. Yeah. And we actually we jumped ahead of this. I gotta I gotta yeah. um introduce my hip hop audience to uh to my wine friends and we do that by asking people who is your rap spirit animal now if you could choose a rapper that embodied your style your spirit your energy what rapper would that be you know what's interesting is is um you know it changes right and what i mean by that is like as you change you know different artists um speak to you right with with where they are in their lives and things like that because i think the greatest artists, you know, the, their lyrics and expression of what, what's happening in their lives at the time. And you see that progression with Jay-Z from his first album to 444 and look at the tone of that. It's like, that's grown men rap, right? You know what I mean? Right. It's like <laughs> right. completely different. But for me, I somebody I resonate on and I'm constantly like pressing the pause button going back listening is J. Cole. We always buy it when he tell us he a genius, but it's clearer lately. It's been hard for him to look into the mirror lately. There was a time when this nigga was my hero, maybe. That's the reason why his fall from grace is hard to take. Cause I believed him when he said his shit was pure, ain't he? The type of nigga swear he real, but all around us fake. The women, the dick riders, you know the yes men. Nobody with the balls to say something to contest them. So he grows out of control. Until the person that he truly was all along is starting to show them. Um, and for me, like I, I just his, his approach, his mentality, confidence in who he is as a man. And, um, the emphasis he puts on self-exploration and allowing yourself to evolve. And, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's like wisdom that is only few rappers have the confidence actually to, to have that be their core message, right? Because it's, I think there's so much pressure to, like, I'm hard, let's talk about the streets, you know what I mean? Like that, yeah. and like, and he's, and he's like rap talking about like meditation and, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Learn, how, how to deal with stress in your life, things like that. And you're like, and great. I mean, you have to have an incredible delivery in his persona. You know, it's like, but you listen to the lyrics and it's like, you know, he's not trying to be hard. Like he's, trying to teach you how to be a better person talk about yeah. how he evolved himself and to me like that resonates with me a lot um you know when you're it's like you're in those tough situations he talks about you know life he says life gives you enough stress it's like there's a lot of ways to deal with it choose wisely you know and he's you know he's referencing the issues with drug and alcohol dependency as a, as a way to deal with trauma in our community right it's like that's right. you know, like you don't think that's important to talk about like no like <laughs> no we can't talk about He's not talking about bling. Like, we don't see Jake Cole these days with, like, a chain on. Like, you know, he'll he'll have a raggedy pair of Jordans on and some sweatpants and a, yeah. and a flannel. And, like, you know, like, I love that, man. Like, he's he just, dresses like, like the rich dude. <laughs> correct, correct. Yeah, correct. And he's like, he's like, yeah, this is who I am. Like, and, like, I'm talented. I'm going to fill the stadium and, like, whatever. Like, I don't have to. This, I'm going to be Jake Cole. And, like, that confidence to be who you are and who you are is, it res- resonates with me a lot. Yeah, no, I feel that. I, like, I remember when um when J. Cole dropped the warm-up. Um, I had never heard anything like that. And he was like a young, talented dude. You heard he was signed to Jay. I'm like, yo, this this dude is crazy, man. But um, where he's grown to, it's interesting. I, I had a show, I was talking to this rapper Dave East about this. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of rappers that are now getting into playing basketball. And J. Cole yeah. looks like He's like really trained to go to the NBA. No, no, he's like legit. Like he's good. I'm like, like you see him like the the random video that he get posted in playing. He's like, like he's talented. But there's always that thing that um, you know, you know, musicians and athletes, right? Like, yeah, there's always been athletes who wanted to put out albums, and be rappers <laughs> and singers, and then there's always like, you know, it's like 
Drake wants to play basketball and it's like, you know, like they always want to be athletes. <laughs> they, they want to emulate each other. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, I think now, now they want to get into the wine game too. <laughs> they should. No, I love that, man. It's like, it's, you know, that's the thing, you know, for me and, and um, what I came to learn about wine is like how it's projected versus like how it really is. Like, Facts, yeah. Like winemakers and farmers are some of the most humble people in the world. But I mean, look, it's like Frank is to the British in the first day. Like they, they made it this elite thing that was like, oh, you had to be in a suit and tie. You had to have so much money to actually even enjoy wine. It's like, that's not fact. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Who created that? You're like the British created that. Like they screwed everything up. It's like, no, like it's, it's a, it's like water. It's an agricultural beverage. It's a part of their culture, man. Like you go to Spain and like wine's cheaper than bottled water sometimes. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. not, wine is not an elite beverage. There's some wines that are just superior to others, but that's a very, it's like less than 1%. So, you know, it's like getting more people engaged with wine. To me, I, I love that because it's, it's a way to project and connect with culture. Yo, what up, people? You feeling the podcast? Well, log on to wineandhiphop.com right now and click that support the show tab. Pick up some merch and try our brand new Wine and Hip Hop Vino 3-pack. Every dollar you spend contributes to producing more fire content just like this. Now, back to the show. No, no, it's great. It, it, it changes, man. It's like, you know, you're at different points in your life. It can serve like free therapy, man. Like if they, you know, you like I listen to. I mean, like if you're, if, if, if you're enthusiastic about rap, it's a part of your life, and you don't like Jay Z. There's something wrong. But if yeah. you can yeah, reference different points of his career, and you can see how the message changes, everything changes as he evolves as a person. And like you know, I listen to 444 more now than anything else. And like I like the blueprint. You know, uh, you know, if that that is like that's the album I reference probably the most. But like listening to 444 like i just listened to the album and it's like like the wisdom in that album and like him growing as a person as an adult, it's like something i can resonate now in my life like leaving behind like the person that you know maybe it was a persona you or, or a party you felt that you were obliged to preserve like this you know this street culture or this you know you're, you're being promiscuous or you don't you know what it is like you, you learn that behavior it's like no it's time to grow up yeah. you know and like that to me is like you know, that's then that becomes what I want to listen to now and defines me now. Definitely, definitely. Um, I was gonna add, we were talking a little bit um, before we got into the spirit animals about 2020, and like we 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 spoke about how your survival skills growing up kind of helped you to be a better CEO, man. And I feel like, um, well, pardon me now, managing managing partner, um, but. Now, like to get through 2020, man, that took a special kind of skin. <laughs> like, you know, you you're someone you stood really stood up when a whole bunch of BS was going on with um, CMS. Like, you stood up and you you spoke out and you really tried to like bring people together. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that time was like for you and um, you know how you were able to spin that into something that that was positive? I mean, well, I mean, also you try. It's like, you know, I, I always try to look at the point of my life right now is it's simply like the obvious answer usually is not the right answer, right? In the sense that sometimes you got to look deeper into stuff and, and, and really think things through and not let emotion drive. And that's a really difficult thing to do when it's something that affects you personally, affects the community, affects your family. To stop and go, okay, well, is there a bigger picture thing here? And 
you know, I spent a little bit of time. I was a little quiet about it at first because I, I didn't want to be really responsive. Like I wanted to think about it. You know, I was in this really interesting situation. I lived, frankly, a lot of my life in the gray. Somebody who's mixed race, somebody who's gone from poverty to, to doing well for myself. So I've seen a lot of the different perspectives and how everybody, li- these people live in the world. And I looked at my experience in the quartermaster in ways and I, I, I saw it actually as a metaphor for the country where it was like, okay, we got a problem, but this is what we got, right? Like, I'm sorry, I'm not leaving America. I'm just not going to. Like, as flawed <laughs> as this country is, and it's flawed, and we're going to fix it, I'm not leaving. You know what I mean? Like, this, yeah. is, this is my country. It's my home. You know what I mean? And I felt that for all the flaws that were had, they could serve our community in a very positive way if we could take more control of how it's operated. Because, you know, I had this conversation with one of our employees of color when I looked at, you know, this person's incredibly talented, super smart, smarter than me, really smart. And I'm like, look, you know, why our certification matter is because if the blonde haired blue-eyed guy in the suit comes to the table to recommend a bottle of you, you trust them, but why, right? Yeah, that's who you personally ask. But the question is, yeah, the answer is yes, you do trust them more. But black guy comes to the table, nine times saying they're gonna ask, no, no, I wanted to talk to the similar. But if they see that pin on, right? Yeah. They see the certification, it's like having a degree on the wall. It's like, no, like you you you've proven that you know, right? My aunt talked all the time. She was like the person she was the only, I think, of my grandmother's sisters that she's my great aunt that went to college. And I and I, I actually called her when this was going on. I asked her a pain, she says, Carlton. I got a degree because it's the only way I can prove these people are talking about. You know? And she graduated from college and got a degree in it, you know, and, and it's it's certifications serve our community because otherwise culturally they're not the community you know, society's not trained to believe that we're intelligent people. Right. That we're cultured people. It, it's very far from the truth, but that's what they know. And and so I said, you know, but can we take this organization, hold the feet to the fire and and now take control of the organization and change the direction? And that's what's happening. It's 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 been a one eighty. To me, that's a that's pro, that's that's productivity. That's that's growth. That's that's now creating an organization doing a service. And that was difficult to deal with. I got an enormous amount of slack. Yeah, like heavy. Came with a heavy fire. Yeah, I mean that's why you know, it took. I'm it telling took, you, like it took some gall, man. I got I respected it when when you yeah. did it. But I told him, I says, look, between you know, you know, I I I'm I'm light enough that. I can put the collar and the sweater on. I can pass. They know I'm not white, but they, you know, they don't know quite what I am. But they know I ain't white. And yeah. <laughs> I, I can pass enough to get through. And being impoverished, you know, we didn't have access to education that a lot of places in America do. Like we didn't have, you know, we didn't have books when I was in school, man. We used to photocopy a page and mm. share a book between 35 people. Like we didn't have books. You know what I mean? But like, you know, so for me, education was very important. And the court gave me a structure to learn and prove what I knew. And it was the only place where I knew that society couldn't hold me back in a sense of like, it wasn't about like, you know, oh no, you're somebody's kid, so I'll help you get this thing. Like I showed up, I studied, I could test, I got a writer, I got a mom. And I could move up that ladder. I mean, I didn't I never had a master's degree in for me. I never did. I had Andy as a punk rock kid. We studied together. You know, I actually ended up passing the test before him. Wow. We came up together and we did it <laughs> together. Like I didn't I didn't have access to another master's degree. Like I ended up knowing more when I moved to Aston, but they didn't train me or anything like that. Like I, right. I did it with my friends. You know what I mean? We hustled together. So for me to have an environment where I can go in and it was, I was judged by my abilities. That to me is the great equalizer. But it's a flawed system because it's naturally set up by the British. 
they reached the problem. <laughs> they, they, they set up a flawed system, believe it or not. And so now it's being changed. I mean, you look at organization now, the, it's the first female chairman and she's a lesbian. And the vice chairman is a female. And the entire board got flipped. I mean, it was progress. Yeah. And to me, that's where I'm in my life, where I want, like, I'd rather, you know, it's, it's important to be loud and aware about these things. That's what gets people's attention. You know, I don't care about Target. I can give two shits about Target. What I care is that you paid attention now. I got your attention. Now we can talk, right? right? <laughs> you know, and, and like I got called more names I'm going to say on the show, but in the end, you know, the product was positive. Yeah. And then, you know, you, you took it even a step further and established um, the Roots Fund uh, with Tahira. Um, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about how you guys came together and and created that and what you're looking to accomplish with that yeah so i mean that that came of a conversation to be honest with you because of my uh the statements that i made she you know she called me out no one will ever call you out in your community more than a black woman we all know and that no no one will call and... you out more than Tahira. <laughs> correct oh don't even get me started um no but it's all I, in I, love it's all in love no it is and look man you know she's an incredibly passionate person and i think the the passion and drive she has for supporting the black community is absolutely exceptional. Yeah. And I love it. I love passionate people just in general. And she's driven behind it. And she's in, in and it's look, genuine. She's a lot There's of a lot of trips. people that do it and it's not genuine. Like she's correct. Genuine. It's not performative. Yeah. It's in her heart. She's still look, we get we have me as a roof She calls me out every time on something. I'm like, Jesus, go back to work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and but at the same time, it's like, okay, what's the result? And I, you know, I sent an email to her a couple years. It's like, you know, we get you know, we, we go at ends about things and meetings. You didn't do this guy, you didn't do this thing. And it, it's an important conversation to have. But in the end, it's like, look at how many people in the community we're, 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 you know, we're serving. And we had that conversation. One thing I realized is that I've been given so many opportunities in my life from various people that had access and could guide me that, you know, it was, it was time, it was a point in my life where I needed to, to set something up to do the same for other people. And if I couldn't do it all myself, like how do we set up a structure? And I reached out to, you know, to here and I started talking. Uh, frankly, I had no experience setting up a nonprofit or even how to operate it. And, you know, referencing what I do now, which is like, you know, like I don't, I don't make wine. I don't know. I, you know, I understand the fear of wine. I've never made one in my life, but I hire great winemakers. Right. I looked at great. Can I bring someone on who can run this thing? Who has a lot of experience. With, I mean, there's a lot of yellow tape with nonprofits and it's, it's a lot of work. And Akimi Dubose is, uh, she's absolutely exceptional as well. Uh, half by half Puerto Rican. Um, she also got a, a scholarship from CCAP. She's from New York. Uh, and we met through that program and she graduated from culinary school, hooked in them, became like consultant for nonprofits and other culinary businesses. Like she's super, super sharp. And I called her and I just pitched the idea. I was like, what do you think? You know, I was like, look, the difference is, I'm like, we got a coloring school, we're making minimum wage. Like, this is the wine industry, man. You can make dough. Like, you gotta, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's different, you know? Like, we can actually set these these candidates up and these kids up for, like, doing well for themselves. She thought about it, she came back, she's like, I'm in. And she's been running ever since. You know, me and Tahira still are on the board and we still direct a lot of things, but Kimi is day to day. She's killing it. She went from knowing very little about the wine industry to, like, having crazy connections. You know, she's raised hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars for scholarship wow. efforts. I mean, we're putting people through UC Davis, um, through quartermaster lands, through WSF, through Mastermind. Um, we're sending two kids over to the, the uh, Burgundy School of Business. We got full rides for their Masters of Business program there. We're sending our first intern uh, over to Burgundy to Domain Fusion this year. Um, 
I mean, it's like, it's like, I mean, and, and it's her, you know, we, we make connections here and there, but it's her. And it's just, for me, it's like incredibly gratifying to the point where she's like, oh, I need you to, you don't have time to do all that you're doing. Like me, I want to, yeah. I want to mentor every one of the kids. Like, you know, we have two candidates that live here in Napa Valley, one of which, two of which actually are working in our companies. And I try to meet with them weekly for like half hour to see mm. one, how they're doing, get them some direction. But I also know it's a big culture shock. We got to be aware of that. Yeah. You, you know, you take, you take these kids and you put them in an environment where they don't have anybody around them that understands them and their culture and how they relate to the world. It's incredibly lonely. You know, I dealt with them in college. I woke up in Southeast DC, grabbed my little trash bag and 13 inch TV, jumped in the car and they dropped me off in the Hudson Valley. And I was like, <laughs> you know, like no one had ever, you know, I didn't know, you know, no one was from where I was from, you know, culinary school is expensive. So it can be really lonely. It can be really traumatic for people. So we want them to be successful. So we try to keep mentoring them and, um, and make sure they support it. And, you know, I have them over for dinner. I cook for all of them, man. We put, you know, we put some records on. We have a good time. It's a great community. I basketball. I'm horrible on the court. I was never good. But <laughs> at 36 and about, you know, 20 pounds heavy and I probably should be. It was like, <laughs> dude, I was like stinking up the court last week. We have uh, Darren, one of the guys, he, uh, he uh, this kid's great. He was a line cook. He reached out to me on Instagram. He was like, look, and he's a black kid. He's like, I'm a line cook. It ain't working. I'm broke. And it's time for me to a change. Like, can you help me out? We brought him over. I connected with a winemaker. The winemaker hired him. He's an absolute rock star. He's the kid. He's going over doing his internship at Dujac this year. Wow, he's getting his degree dope. from UC Davis at the same time. But the guy's a monster on the court. Uh, <laughs> like, it's insane. I'm like, I t- and, and he was the most humble kid in the world until he started beating me at basketball and, and, and the shit start talking started. And I says, Darren, I swear to God, I hope you never become a great winemaker. You're going to be insufferable. Like, like in cry- I mean, the shit talking this kid, like, like just- but I mean, the, the point of that is, is it's been also very rewarding for me to like create a community for these guys out here in the middle of a region that really didn't have that. And it's changing the narrative. You know, the community is used to getting to seeing people that I didn't see here, working in the cellars, running mm-hmm. estates, running taste rooms. And it's, you know, it's like, again, that whole return was like, all right, well, it's time for me to like, like, it's not just about me, right? Like I'm on a trajectory. God knows what, the, you know, what's going to happen next year, but it's like, for right now, I'm going to create a space for these guys to see. Um, this is, I mean, dude, I think about like what my career would have been like if something like this existed when I was coming up, dude. It's, yeah, I mean, like, it's that, nuts. That, that had nothing. to be crazy. Exactly. Like, I look around and, you know, that feeling about, you know, no one speaks like me, like all these dudes, like, took French in high school. <laughs> you know, yeah, you're I'm, like, still, what? <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out. Yeah, you know, no, like hundred percent that, that goes a long way. So, you know, what you're doing is, is, is very special, man. I got to say, you grow, you grow up in a different country, man. Like I, I, we talked to our friends about it. It was like, you grow up in a different America. When I, when I, when I got to the CIA, like the, the cultural lag of like, again, we talk about music, man. When I grew up, DC was a very interesting place for music because DC resisted rap for a long time. Because it was very anti-New York. A lot of it was resistant because they were competitive with, with, with like, with, you know, drug dealing. And, yeah, and, the and dope gangs. boys like, would come up and that's DC it. is yeah. it. Hey, DC is definitely yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So DC was about go-go. Everybody listened to go-go music. We had Backyard Band. We had Junkyard. Every neighborhood that had their own little go-go band. I used to play. I was a drummer in a go-go band. And it was like, you would play in house parties sometimes. Sometimes, I mean, Backyard and Junkyard Band were like, 
you know, they were they were selling out nightclub, big nightclubs. Yeah. And that was our that was our music. We resisted rap. And I don't I remember I didn't really I don't remember listening to rap really until like I was probably 13 years old, like Reasonable Doubt. My room was like the first real wow. rap album I heard. And it wasn't me. I had a my cousin was dating this guy. He was a dealer. He used to, he used to raise uh, pit bulls. He was from, from Petersburg um, for fighting. He was a Southern cat. But he, 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 like, we were sitting in this car and he'd be playing Jay-Z. It was the first introduction. We didn't listen to rap. Um, we were more likely to listen to Go-Go or R&B than we were rap. And then Jay-Z, and then that's when rap blew up in D.C. Bone Thugs and Harmony were huge in D.C. Mm. And it was around that same time. It was like 96, 97. Yeah. And then, and then rap took off. And it became, where, you know, you look at, like, the beef with, like, Biggie and Tupac and then Death Row when all that blew up. That made rap in the news it was mainstream it blew up all over the country right and then yeah. people started realizing like local variations like oh shit there's west coast rap too they got and then like, the southern guys they got their own sound in, in the mid 90s it blew up like crazy and it was everywhere then dc really got into rap uh i mean like you know realistically well wally is like the first real successful rapper from dc i was about to say like yeah. who really came out first with the we had the nike boots was like his first joint correct yeah <laughs> <laughs> No, but it was, you know, DC is such a unique place. We got our own, our own language, our own accents. I mean, obviously, um, through, you know, my journey through the worlds that I've had to uh, survive in and adapt in, I don't speak the way I used to, but DC has a very particular accent. And I get homesick. I listen to Wale. Paint on my face, laying back, rolling the J. Feeling like these rap niggas ain't as real as they say. That's why I keep my friends limited. Keep my hoes interested. Presented by the game like I'm Pete Rose in this bitch. Ain't nothing stopping us. Tell you what the problem is. I'm on top of my game, but these niggas won't acknowledge it. So a nigga hungry as a plastic hippopotamus. Stop us better taking in blood like a phlebotomist. Mm. I mean, that accent is so thick. It's undeniable as DC through and through. Like Barry Farns DC. Yeah. Like it's, he's <laughs> like deep. No, but it's, you know, DC, DC was really um, pretty unique in that sense with, with rap. But where I was going with that was when I went to college, like I didn't, like I'd never heard of the Beatles. I didn't know who, you know, I didn't, I didn't know who any of these people were. Like I'd never seen a Star Wars movie or, a, you know, like, so it was like I grew up in a different country. It was like being an immigrant. Right. So when I was there, you know, like that cultural slide was like major, you know, yeah. and you know, they don't have to adapt to you. You got to adapt to them. It's their world. You're just in it. But yeah. I was lucky there were a couple of cool cats. I, you know that they were very open-minded. They they were so intrigued with the way I was raising my culture, and I would like we would get in the car and I'd take them down to, down ninety five, and they'd come to DC with me for the weekend. And they were like, then they were cultured. They were like, shit, like what is this? <laughs> like some Nando wings? <laughs> no, seriously, like they were like, what is mumbo sauce? No, it was like it was nuts. <laughs> and then I take them to my church, like, and those guys, those guys are still some of my best friends in the world because. They were the, to me, it's a very powerful thing to be in a position of absolute privilege. You're in your comfort zone to go out of your way to take interest in somebody like me, full interest. And for me, to me, it was like, they, you know, they're, they're incredible humans. And that to me is like what we need more of in this country is like, you know, it's like, let me celebrate your culture. Let me be excited to learn about you instead of just trying to judge from what I may have seen in a movie or what I saw in a rap video or something like, like, yeah. who are you? And I think, you know, that to me, that's why they're still some of my best friends in the world. It's interesting because I, I feel like I had that same experience, like as a young man coming up in the wine industry, like I started in wine when I was um, 20 years old. So dudes like my man, Michael Jessen, he was like yeah. that for me, you know, this dude yeah. took me 
to um to the the grand tasting at um at yeah. the Marriott Marquis. I remember that like literally took me under his that arm. That was wild, dude. Yeah, that's and a I'm huge. Telling, it's I'm... like multi floors, like it's <laughs> exactly. And I'm straight out at that point. Yeah, and I I I talked to him about this. Now I'm like, yo, what what was your first impressions of me at that time? Because like. I mean, speaking different, dressing different, everything. Like the shit that yeah. I was saying, I, I can't, I still can't believe he was hanging out with me, but you know, that's, I think that's one of the beauty, um, the beautiful parts about wine culture though. There's this like, it's like a yearning to have this cultural exchange with people, Yeah, you know? But I think it's very uniquely American as well because no one really wants to talk about, but a lot of Europeans are some of those racist people in the world. Mm. And, you know, you see it all the time over there. I mean, they created this thing let's be honest right so <laughs> i think we are uniquely positioned in america to be like we often are the leaders in that in teaching the world how to use wine as a as a connector as a way as an as an even playing field for us to connect in in in, in um, you know come to the table and connect with each other i've connected with more people from different walks of life through wine than anything else i do in my life um sometimes even more so than food um, but I think for, for Americans and for, for the right people, you know, they want, you want to share it, man. Like you want to share with as many people as you can get with. Cause it's like, that's what it's about. Like, you know, how many times you want to open a great bottle? You're like, no, I don't want, I don't, you know, I'm just going to drink this myself. You guys, you no, know, it's like yeah. a wine lover can't help but to be enthusiastic and share with anyone. I don't care where you come from. If you're, if you're, if you're pumped about this bottle, let's, let's talk about this together. And, and see, that's why I, I, even if it's an expensive bottle, I mean, with my friends who have the means, we still drink very casually. Like some of my favorite people to drink wine with are the ones that are comfortable hanging out in jeans and a hoodie, listening to great music and, and drinking great wine. Like it doesn't have, you know, why do I have to, you know, do I have to talk tasty notes and dress up to, talk, to drink great wine? Like, no, you know what I mean? Like, and that, that to me is, is I think where the country and the way the industry in the U.S. is going. And it's going to change the industry for the world. We're the biggest wine market in the world. We, we, we dictate it. Mm, that's, that's deep, man. That's coming from the man himself, man. I, I got one question to leave you with. If, if you could share a glass of wine with any rapper, dead or alive, who would it be? That's interesting, huh? Because, like, you get to learn so much yeah. about these rappers personally, mm -hmm. like, through their yeah. lyrics, you know? You feel like sure, you know yeah, what yeah. I'm I think it would probably be pre-Death Row Tupac. Mm. Like wow, to me, like the guy, um, yeah, because the guy, he, he lost his way. You know what I mean? Like you talk about people being uh, a result of their environment. I think he was in the wrong environment around the wrong people. If you look at his mother and how he was raised. The guy was, he was so intelligent. He was so aware. And if you, you, you know, look at his lyrics and listen to him, like he was, he was so ahead of his time with, especially in, in, in rap where there, you know, that wasn't a time when people were talking about these sort of things. He was talking about, you know, mm. you know, and, and, and it wasn't always obvious. Like, you look at, like Brenda had a baby. You talk about like what was going on in the community at that time with, you know, with, with, you know, these kids having kids and what their lives were like and things like that. And really, like to me, like you go to sit down and have a glass of wine with him and talk about his perspective on, uh, you know, he had very particular perspectives about the U S government and how the economy was structured and, you know, how race was, was that concept of race was created and, and, and sort of injected into American society, like a really, really wise guy. And, um, you know, sort of one of the guys you just wish, like, what would it look like if he was still around? You know, what would he be? What would be the evolution of him currently, right? You yeah, know, because all those guys who were still around that were in that era, 
they've evolved, right? Like you look at Snoop, like he was in the midst of that. People, you know, look, they think of Martha Stewart Snoop right now, but yeah. <laughs> in the day, Snoop was like he was walking around with a gun, like Snoop was, killed the guy. Snoop, <laughs> like, Snoop was, was <laughs> correct. You know what I mean? Like, and now Snoop, now Snoop is, you know, he's like on TV flipping pancakes with Martha Stewart. That's his evolution. But you just yeah. wonder. But that, but that, but what I'm saying, that's okay, right? That's right. him growing up, right? But I just, you always wonder, like, okay, well, what if Tupac was around? Like, what he, what he could have been as a value to our, our, our community, and just imagine sitting there with that guy having a glass of wine. Man, I I feel like he would have definitely took like political office or something like that. Major, he would have been. Yeah. I mean, look, the guy was always an activist, you know. So, um, yeah, I think that that, that would have been incredible. That's a dope one, man. I would I would just like to be a fly on the wall because I know it'd be an interesting convo. <laughs> I would be listening. Those are the kind of guys. One thing I started learning is like there's some tables and you just you listen. You ask a couple leading questions. You go. <laughs> you, you don't learn a whole lot from talking. Yeah, definitely, man. Well, I think everybody learned a lot this episode, man. This is this is definitely dope. Thank you so much for joining us. I know you got a lot on your plate. Thank you, man. I appreciate your work. I think it's incredible what you're doing. I think the two worlds, um, they belong together, hip-hop and, and wine. Definitely. Uh, you know, and, and, and they're the powerful. It's what our community needs. Just trying to do my part, man. Just doing my part. Um, but yeah, y'all, it's another episode of Wine and Hip Hop. Peace. This was a moment in wine and hip hop brought to you by Crew Love.